The Gutenberg Bible and its subsequent printing press helped catalyze printing in the West, and perhaps still has some stock today in the many, many books we collectively have on our shelves. Welcome back to Diddy and Hawthorne in the In-Between. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz, and you're listening to my podcast about the relevancy of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. Before Gutenberg, printing as the world experienced it was centralized in the East, where the first books were printed using movable block slates in and around the 11th century. To start, the first individual typing apparatus of sorts is attributed to Chinese alchemist Pai Sheng, while the first metal typing face was created in Korea in 1377 to print what was called the Jikji, which consisted of what Evan Andrews cites as a collection of Zen Buddhist teachings. What I find interesting about these early accounts of printing is that most, if not all of them, include printing for spread of religious ideology, whether that be Buddhist, Taoist, or Christian ideology, and it seems that they all have roots in spreading ideas about one's center of being. Indeed, I know from my own study of Christian theology that spreading faith or evangelizing is one of the most important commandments that Christians receive from the Bible, and it makes sense to me, at least from the evidence that I've gathered thus far, that um, at the very beginning, in the Middle Ages at least, most theologies, East, West, everywhere, started with the core beliefs of the perpetuation of love and evangelism. The Gutenberg Bible specifically was printed in 1455 in Mainz, Germany by, you guessed it, Johannes Gutenberg. It utilized the West's first version of the metal type and is said overall to have catalyzed the transition between medieval and modern bookmaking. It has 42 lines per page, it's also called the 42 line Bible, and had as many as six people working over one copy at once, adjusting the type, binding the pages, and checking for errors of any kind. The entire work is in Latin. In addition, there's no title page or page numbers, and not much aside from the consistency of the type itself to differentiate it from the medieval manuscript copyists um, that people were used to reading at that time. Oddly enough, there isn't a reportedly accurate estimate of how many copies were initially made of the Bibles, and some accounts by the British Library place the number between 148 copies and 180 copies, though there's no way to really know. We know for sure, though, that 12 vellum copies and 36 paper copies are still existent, though only 20 of them are complete. Aside from the printed works themselves, the publishing industry was becoming just that, an industry, and Gutenberg was soon met with legal pushback from his business partner, Johann Fuss, and one of their employees named Peter Schoeffer, which um, there's an anecdote that Peter Schoeffer became Fuss's son-in-law somehow uh, down the road, but anywho, <laughs> Mainz as a city was also not well equipped to become a major business epicenter at that time, so there were also pushbacks from places like Vienna who were much more well equipped to deal with printing. Um, and Mainz was also rather provincial and had very little to do with major trade routes in Germany, which made it difficult to disseminate printing. Um, I've been doing quite a bit of research on medieval Nuremberg for a paper recently and have come across surprising accounts of how popular Nuremberg was, not only because of its status as the crown of the Holy Empire uh, when it housed the imperial relics for example, but 
also because of its historical independence and self-reliance. Nuremberg wasn't necessarily on any important trade routes, and it certainly did not have fertile ground or port of any kind, but even so, many maps of the time put Nuremberg as the center of the world because of its political prominence in the Holy Roman Empire. Interesting stuff, but I digress again, Mainz was no Nuremberg. Now the process of actually creating the Bible in its finalized form proved rather arduous for Gutenberg, but once he completed it, the same printing processes would be used until the 19th century. A few of the Bible copies, as I mentioned, for example, were printed on vellum, which was essentially cured animal skin, as paper was rather expensive to process and difficult to maintain. There's also the question of whether or not mainstream printing made books tangibly more accessible to the general public, which seems obvious, like sure it did, um, because many books were produced um, with less overall cost at that time, driving pricing down, and the market probably skyrocketed as well, right? But I'm convinced that it's not that clean cut. There were novels, especially in the 18th century in Germany, starting with Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther, that had an appeal so as to drive the market for books up and create a popular demand for reading that wasn't otherwise present at the time. However, in the Middle Ages, the literacy rate was not high enough to beg the kind of demand that many of us assumed there was when we got into this Gutenberg journey in the first place. A source from Sewanee College puts the first record of English literacy in 1533 at about 40%, meaning that in languages such as German and Italian, which were not developed in terms of their literature until much later, it's not unreasonable to guess that the literacy rate was much, much lower than what England was reporting. Something similar can be seen in the patterns of Catholic mass celebrations in Latin because as time went on, though masses were still celebrated regularly in Latin and continued to be so until the 1940s and 50s, um, a majority of churchgoers over time lost the ability to understand it in services, heightening the importance of things like iconography and vernacular usage in the church. Another reason perhaps why Latin became so inaccessible was also because of the Protestant Reformation, as Luther himself was a big proponent of publishing the Bible and teaching God's word in the vernacular in understandable terms for the public, of which German was not legitimately accepted into until centuries later. Yes, I too can see the strange dichotomy that we've been weaving, <laughs> let me clarify. If the Protestant Reformation started and swept quickly across Germany, why was the Gutenberg Bible published in Latin? It's a matter of cold dates, actually, because the Gutenberg Bible was first published, as I mentioned previously, in 1455, and the Protestant Reformation did not happen until the late 16th century, years after Luther published his 95 Theses on the door of the Catholic Church and began campaigning for widespread church reform. We're also now left with the question of what changed between the 15th and 18th centuries that so drastically brought up the demand for literature. This is only my own personal conjecture, of course, but if you all have better answers than me, please send me an email about it, but I actually think that the eventual increase in demand was partly due to changes in education and partly due to authors like Dante and Goethe. Let me explain. In the medieval era, it was quite common for parents to send their sons to medieval monasteries where they would train to become monks in the fashion that was popular at that time, essentially. Rich families had enough money and power to educate their children and could also pay for the time-consuming hand-printed books of old, but other than that, medieval culture was very much centralized around different trades that were, for the most part, passed down generally, generationally. Indeed, much of medieval culture was built around different classes. 
As you all know, I'm taking a course on church architecture currently, super interesting, and in medieval monasteries, even the paths that pilgrims would take to visit the relics of the church, um, as well as minute aspects of daily life, such as the beers that people would be served in those monasteries, were all reflective of the inherent class structure of that society. So when the monastery system was replaced by the cathedral system and people for the first time could study for a secular position or job, but still in an educational environment, everything changed. After that, of course, different types of education developed, such as the British boarding school system, all very interesting topics that we don't have time to get into. Authors such as Dante and Goethe then not only standardized their respective languages, especially in terms of their written forms, like Italian was definitely not standardized at all in terms of its written form by the time that Dante's Inferno came out, but it also created something of a collective desire for reading that couldn't have been fostered in an earlier time with less basic needs met. I'll also mention briefly that relevant to this, but outside of the scope of today's episode, is a discussion of the evolution of the newspaper and how that amassed literacy of all kinds in the public realm. If I had to conclude with a summary statement about Gutenberg, it would be that while he found a way to pioneer the movable metal type in a way that allowed literature to be disseminable to lay people, there were clearly other social factors such as literacy rates that changed the scope of the Gutenberg Bible's effects on the public. That is all for this week's episode, actually. Thank you for joining me on the Gutenberg journey, and I will see y'all next week with another episode about all things literary. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from me, there is an episode of DH&I for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our back catalog of episodes. 2019 is the year of Didion, so if you'd like to follow along in my quest to read Joan Didion's collective works or learn more about the movement to bring lit back to people, everything can be found at Didion and Hawthorne.Blueberry.net, and remember that Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Now you can also follow the show on Twitter with at DidionIn, two N's total. I'll be posting about new lit releases, reading lists, and of course the new projects and episodes relating to DH&I. Still there? One more thing then. Remember that leaving a comment or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other Guilty Pleasure podcast platform helps leverage the show so that other literature enthusiasts can find the community. In other words, it helps a ton. Auf Wiedersehen!